several years ago, I photocopied an article. I unfortunately failed to footnote it, but a pastor recorded an incident that struck me at first as somewhat bizarre, but upon further thought, not really that bizarre at all. It took place in Russia before the Iron Curtain had been pulled back ever so slightly. If you're following the news, you know it's closing again. This author, a pastor, and several other pastors were traveling in the Northeast region looking for opportunities to develop Christian radio. One of their stops was in a city where a local commissar, kind of a mayor, met the group and led them on a tour. He didn't know they were pastors. He just knew they were Americans, and he obviously wanted to communicate a message to them. As he took them toward the middle of town, he told them they were very proud of their church, and uh, he invited them to see it for themselves, to which they agreed. As they uh, neared the church building, they were a little surprised to see this beautiful white church building with its typical onion shaped turrets as they stepped inside. The lobby seemed somewhat similar to the lobby of any normal or regular church with doors leading into the sanctuary. However, as they pushed through those doors and stepped into the sanctuary, they were astonished. It lost all semblance to a house of worship. Stacked from floor to ceiling were rows upon rows of chicken coops filled with cackling hens. The commissar made a sweeping gesture, and uh, he said, Our church building is, is the finest hatchery in the region. And then he looked at these Americans, and he said to them, God is not real. Chickens are real. The truth is, you find the average person on the streets of this country, and they're not all that convinced that the God of the Bible is, is real. What used to be a cultural exclamation point is now a, a question mark. Jobs are real. Economy is real. Uh, houses are real. Families real. Suffering is real. Heartaches real. Money is real. The pressures of life are, are real. Chickens are real. We're not too convinced that God's real. The pressures of culture weigh down and thoughts of God move into the ethereal realm of questioning. This isn't really a new problem. One editorial comments, and I quote, The world is too big for us. Too much is going on. Too many crimes. Too much violence. Too much devotion to entertainment. Try as you will, you get behind in the race in spite of yourself. It's a strain to keep pace, and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly. You're out of breath trying to keep up with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature cannot endure much more. So reads the Atlantic Journal, June 16, 1833. How are we to communicate to our generation, the chickens are real, but God is too. That Jesus Christ really is a genuine, safe harbor. That there really is authentic hope. 
that His grace is real, that the gospel is real. Well, is it any surprise to us to discover that the advertisement campaign for God has been left up to us as Christians? In a nutshell, here's how we do it. We, Paul has been teaching us, are the recipients of grace, the recipients of God's gospel of goodness and grace and mercy. And and we then disseminate, we become distributors of grace. We all have our own little franchise and we distribute it to our world. Our lives become undeniable demonstrations of the fact that Not only are chickens real, but God is, too. The creator of chickens is real. Which happens to be the driving incentive as Paul begins to narrow his focus as this little letter to Titus is about to come to an end. If you can believe it, we'll be finished in just another two or three years. I mean mean weeks, okay? (laughs) I'm going to give you three things today, three observations that come from the text we'll look at. Number one, we are advertising a gospel that is truly reliable. He's going to summarize now, not only for the the believer living on the island of Crete, but in every generation, in every culture, we are first and foremost advertising a gospel that is actually truly reliable. Let's pick it up. And the text for today, verse 8, says this. He opens, this is a trustworthy statement. In other words, this is true. This is genuine. This is real. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Now, what are these things that we're to speak confidently? What's he referring to? Well, in the immediate context, he's referring back to that sentence that took us two Sundays to dissect, beginning at verse 4, all the way down to verse 7. He's saying, deliver these things, the things you've just learned, which means, if you go back by way of review, we're to communicate with confidence the truths of God's love and kindness, verse 4. We're to communicate that God's Son did, in fact, make an epiphany, an appearance, Verse 4, that faith in Christ alone saves us apart from good deeds. Verse 5, that God's Spirit has given us a full body bath in redemption. Verse 5, that the Holy Spirit is also in the process of day by day renewing us. We have had that daily, or I should say that, that once in all, in a lifetime bath, now we get a daily shower of renewal. We're also communicating with confidence that Jesus Christ, who is equal to God the Father, is sufficient to save us. He is our Savior. Verse 6, that Christ replaced our sin with his righteousness, that all the charges brought against us in that divine court of law, so to speak, have been thrown out of court. And he has brought the gavel down and and said, oh, the record of Christ's perfection has been given to you. Not only did he justify us, which that is referring to, he actually then, verse 7, tells us at the end, we are made co-owners of the kingdom. Paul said, listen, don't beat around the bush. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't folklore. This isn't a string of 
of old wives' tales. This is the gospel, and I want you to communicate these things with confidence. They are really true. So communicate them that way. By the way, Titus, again, the immediate application of this is going to be to this pastor teacher. He's saying, Titus, I want you, first and foremost, to speak with confidence about these truths. I want you to do it. And I don't know if Titus was hesitating in the face of cultural opposition or maybe even disgruntlement in the churches that he was sent to organize. It's possible that Titus was holding back, reticent. Paul had to tell that other young pastor in the faith that he wrote letters to by the name of Timothy similar things. Come on, don't, don't hold back. Don't let people look down on you. Be an example. Get out there and, and with confidence deliver the truth. In fact, Paul hints at this potential hesitation in Titus' heart. You remember back at the end of chapter 2 and verse 15 where he says, now look, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Don't let anybody disregard you. Now here in verse 8 of chapter 3, Titus, I want you to speak confidently. He's kind of like a coach. You know, on the sideline, time's running out. He calls the quarterback over, grabs him by the face mask and yells in his ear. Here's the play. Go out there and do it. You can't miss it. You can't, you can't mistake the, the passion of the coach or the play to run. Paul is effectively saying, listen, Titus, I know you're young and the culture is evil and these churches might even be resisting these truths. I want you to go back in the game and don't hold back. Here's the play. I'm enjoying a new commentary on Titus by Chuck Swindoll. It's called Insights, and he has just recently published Insights on Titus and Timothy, and I have been reading that along with these other commentators in my study. And He made a quote on this particular text as it related to Titus as a pastor-teacher, and I think this is true for all who teach. He said this, There were so many voices of error on the island of Crete. The same is true everywhere. So this is, after all, the primary purpose of a pastor-teacher. He is responsible to proclaim grace clearly and emphatically. He cannot allow reluctance to delay him. He must not allow hesitation to interrupt him. And he should not be apologetic. I love this statement. If a pastor stands on the authority of God's Word, he can afford to be bold. Isn't that good? And that's for those of you who teach as well. A lot of teachers, several hundred, who will be involved in teaching on this campus even this day and throughout the week. Those who teach and preach the Word in the larger scenarios of God's gospel ministry, you know full well the temptation, the potential of holding back, of not addressing certain subjects. They might be controversial, so we're going to kind of get over that verse and maybe nobody will notice we missed it. Or maybe we'll just pick verses and preach or teach those and we can avoid the minefield out there. You know what it's like, don't you? To face the subtle desire to be pleasing to men instead of being pleasing to God. Paul also uses the present tense in this challenge. This isn't a one lesson and, okay, you're brave enough, now you can go into retirement. He, he, he's, he's 
saying this is continual. Keep repeating. Keep speaking. Keep teaching these things with confidence. Remember, he began with the same thought in chapter 3, verse 1. This is ongoing. This is a repetitive task. Remind them, remind them, remind them. Why? Because we who teach need reminding, don't we? And so does the body. And then, of course, so does the world at large. One pastor I read some time ago, he put it in a rather interesting tongue-in-cheek way that we need to remind the flock. He said three friends decided to go deer hunting, a lawyer, a doctor, and a pastor. And as they were walking into the woods, suddenly a, a, a large buck became visible, and all three men at the same time simultaneously raised their rifles and fired. The buck went down. All three men ran over to, to, to look at the, at the prize, and they couldn't tell whose shot had brought it down. And, and they all wanted to lay claim to it, and so a, a big debate ensued. And after a few minutes, a game officer happened to come by and asked what all the commotion was about. The doctor stepped forward. He said, well, I got a doctor. I'm a doctor. There's a lawyer and a pastor. And we're, you know, we're, we're discussing, we're debating who actually shot this buck. The officer said, well, let me take a look. And he, he bent down, looked for just a few seconds and stood back up and said, well, the preacher shot the buck. The preacher? How can you be so sure? The officer said, well, easy. The bullet went in one ear and came out the other. You're very funny. Um, <laughs> the truth is both pastors, teachers at large, and the flock are prone to forget. And Paul wants us to be reminded over and over and over again. Why? Because if we don't get it, if we don't have it, we'll never communicate it out there. If we don't get it in here where we're patting each other on the back, we're, we're in favor with the gospel... What are we going to do out there where we happen to be God's advertisement campaign for the gospel? We're it. We're his advertising budget. We, we are the billboard along the interstates of life that people will look at. We're, we're the PowerPoint in the boardroom. We're, we're exhibit A in the defense of the gospel. We are communicating, Paul just wants to remind Titus and us, look, you are communicating a gospel that is truly reliable. Don't hold back. Especially as culture wanders further and further away from its moorings of truth. Speak with confidence and assurance. Now, if we really want to communicate to our generation, there's a second key distinctive about these remarkable Christians in any generation. They're also identified as as those who are surrendering to a God who is truly personal. Now, before we make it to Paul's challenge, and this is all sort of introduction, we're going to get there eventually, but it's as if he says, now look, we want to make sure we understand who we're talking to, uh, who the audience is we're defining as those who ought to communicate clearly this gospel that is reliable. I want you to notice this phrase, it'd be easy to miss, where Paul specifically identifies those who have believed God. Those who have believed God. That's who I'm talking to. That's the focus of Paul's statement. 
Titus, tell those who have believed God. You tell them, you tell them the truth, and tell them to tell the truth as well. Who are they, Paul, those who have believed God? The perfect tense of that verb, to believe, points to a specific time in the past. That's what he talked about earlier as we sort of dissected that long sentence. These are are they who have been saved. There's a past tense belief. They've come to understand the gospel and they have believed. And then it has this ongoing effect. They never do lose or leave that belief that he really is truly reliable, his gospel is, and that he is truly personal in his salvation. We are they who believe that God at some point didn't just wind up the universe and now he watches us from a distance. And that isn't it at all. That might be a hit song by Bette Midler from a few years ago, but he is not watching us from a distance. He is personal. He is so personal that you can actually talk to him. And it begins when you talk to him and say, Lord, I understand the gospel and I want you personally to save me. That's how personal he is. Paul is saying, I'm about to call you to a lifestyle that is remarkable. But before I do, let me just clarify to whom I'm I'm talking. I'm thinking about and writing to those who personally know him. And that's crucial before we ever get to his verdict. Why? Because it is the individual Christian who lives with the conviction that, that God is alive, is the Christian who is able to become involved in other people's lives. And for the right reason. It's exactly where Paul is headed. Not only are we advertising a gospel that is truly reliable, and the foundation for reaching our world is surrendering to a God who is truly personal. Thirdly, and here's his point, we are to initiate a lifestyle that is truly beneficial. Notice verse 8 again. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things that I've already told you, I want you to speak in an ongoing way with confidence so that those who in the past have believed God and are continuing in that belief, here it is, will be careful to engage in good deeds. Now, Paul has already made it clear that we're not saved by good deeds, not by deeds of righteousness, chapter 3 and verse 5. We don't do good deeds to go to heaven. We do good deeds because we are going to heaven and we want to take as many along with us. And it happens to be good deeds that get their attention. They couldn't care less that we're in here today. Big deal. They're not going to check our attendance record. They don't care how much money we've given to support the ministry. They don't care how often you open your Bible in quiet time. They're not going to ask you, well, before you tell me that, how many times do you pray when you're alone with God? They couldn't care less. How about they can spot good deeds? And I fear that the church, and we would be among them that are committed to the doctrines of grace, that faith alone saves us, sola fide, and we learn that by means of our commitment to sola scriptura, that is, the scriptures alone which provide the foundation for what we believe and, and, and what we hold to and cling to for life and practice, tend to take those good deeds and say, well, that's for the liberal church. Yeah, we'll let them do all that stuff. That's that social gospel thing. We're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So we're just going to you know, hibernate in here. We're going to talk to ourselves 
And maybe every once in a while, somebody will notice. Or maybe even come in here. That isn't what he's talking about. He's saying, look, you're the advertisement campaign for Christianity. An undeniable demonstration of a changed life gets notice. That's why Paul, throughout this letter, by the way, even as he's describing the great doctrines of our faith, you'll, you'll notice dotted through this letter are references to good deeds. Maybe you could take out your pencil, as I've done, and you can just circle this phrase. It's going to show up several times. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 7. Be an example of good deeds. Good deeds. All right, you notice that? You might, you might circle that and draw a line down to chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice the last part, a people of his own, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There it is again. Chapter 3, look at verse 1, be ready for every good deed. Look at verse 8, we're looking at that, be careful to engage in good deeds. And verse 14, notice that. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. This isn't a document of social gospel. This is the truth of the gospel demonstrated in a life that's applying itself to engaging our world with good deeds. Oh, so you mean there's more to Christianity than learning our doctrinal P's and Q's? Oh, you know how committed I am to that. You know I'm committed to that. And Paul isn't repeating himself with his good deed, good deed, good deed, good deed because he's running out of material and he really wants to make it to chapter 3 and verse 15. No. Remarkable Christianity isn't just an education in good doctrine. It is a life of application in and through good deeds. We have received the kindness and goodness and mercy of God. Remember, don't keep it to yourselves. Open up a franchise. Open up a counter. Get out there and demonstrate it. Become a distributor of kindness and mercy and grace, which, by the way, reflects the character of our Lord. The Gospel of Luke records for us that our Lord himself was kind even to ungrateful and evil men. Luke 6.35. Now, I want you to notice one other word here. Paul says that we should be careful to engage in good deeds. You notice that? Be careful to engage. Be careful to do good deeds. Now, when I was growing up, I heard that verb over and over again. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Right? Interesting that this is the only time this verb appears in all of the New Testament. And it would be related to this. Be careful. You can think what he could tell us to be careful about. He says, be careful to engage in good deeds. It's a compound verb that that means to think upon. Or we might say it this way, to think about. Or to be intentional. We like that word. Be intentional. Think about it. I mean, how many times have you ever gotten up out of bed and thought, okay, I want to think through two or three ways to do good things today. I want to come up with two or three things. What could I do today? What could I do today? What could I intend to do to be good? 
It implies being creative. It, it implies this verb being thorough, thinking upon with intentionality of how and what to do in the form of good deeds. And again, it's in the present tense, which means this isn't one solitary isolated act. It really goes beyond those two or three things you might come up with on your list. This has to do with a mindset. You get up and you go out there and I've got a mindset on that says, I will do good deeds. That's right here. You know anybody like that? It just seems every time you bump into them, they're looking for something good to do. It just seems second nature. They're the first ones to take on, you know, that extra assignment. Uh, They're the ones to take on the distasteful chore. They get their hands dirty without any complaint. Around here you see them. You know, they're coming early. They're leaving late. They're setting up, taking down, making coffee, meeting friends, doing all teaching, discipling, just all kinds of stuff. They, They literally, it's almost like they look for good things to do. They are an exception to the rule, aren't they? That's why you notice them. People at school know who they are. The teacher knows who they are in his classroom. The coach knows who they are on that football team. Those employees know who they are at the job. They're the ones who put the coffee filter in. Or maybe take the old one and dump it out and put fresh water. I mean, they just, they just have this attitude. What can I do? What can I do for others? Paul is effectively writing here, look, if anybody's going to be like that, it ought to be the Christian. Be careful to engage in good deeds. That word engage struck me as well. It's a word that refers to initiative. So now look what you've got. You've got intentionality plus creativity plus initiative. I mean, this person's going to make an exceptional beneficial mark wherever they go. It could be mundane, could be behind the scenes. They're just doing good. It might be public, it might be apparent, maybe not, doesn't matter really to them. They're just remarkable Christians who've adopted this lifestyle that is so remarkable it is driven to benefit somebody else. And they do. And let me say that that kind of beneficial life is like a it's like a rock you throw in a pond. The circles just keep emanating from that spot, the spot of their lives affecting outward. So obviously, that kind of attitude is going to impact your home. But Paul will use this, this idea in the church, the local church. It would begin here, certainly. I mean, if one place ought to be overrun with people wanting to do good deeds, it would be the church, Right? In fact, Paul would write it this way to the Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 9. Let's do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. I mean, if, if we're people of creativity and energy and willingness and initiative, the first place that ought to benefit is the place we call our house of faith. It would be the, that, that circle. Before you get too far out of the local assembly. This house then would be filled with people who are eager to do good deeds, which means I can become very practical. Should we ever have a vacancy in nursery help around here? Should people be in line? Would we ever need teaching staff 
would we ever need someone to set up chairs or make coffee or greet or usher or volunteer in a myriad of ministries around? Wouldn't we be so benefited because we, above everyone, are, are committed to good deeds? I mean, do we really need, and I asked coming in today to get the statistic right, do we, do we really only need six guys to park a thousand cars? What if they had 60 guys out there? I mean, then we could not ignore them. We would have to park where they tell us to park. There are 60 of them. There's one at every corner. We really only need six getting wet out there today. I mean, I'm not talking about dramatic, you know, stuff. Just people who get up ready, eager, careful, thinking through. I think about our choir and orchestra that's grown tremendously in the last year, but we have people showing up at 7 o'clock who will play or sing, and they won't leave until after the third hour or playing in the third hour, which is near lunchtime. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing if we had 300 people in the choir and 100 were only needed each of the three services? Now, I've polled each audience, so I'm going to poll you. How many of you at some point in your life have sung in a choir? Raise your hand. Hold it up and look around. Look I want to see you all after the service <laughs> up here. That's unreal. I mean, every hour, it's like 80%. How many of you cannot sing? Raise your hand. Okay, you stay right where you are, <laughs> and you just cheer along as these people get up here. You say, but wait a second, I'm not a member of this church. Well, what are you waiting for? Join us or leave us? Did he just say that? Yeah, we need your parking space so those four guys can have a little easier. No, my point is this. There is a church out there somewhere that needs you. There's a house of faith that needs you. Their efforts are missing your hands and your heart. We need you too, by the way. But if you don't need us, Find a place that does and roll up your sleeves and get involved. Uh, one title of a book just jumped out at me. I didn't read the book, but I read the title, and it was powerful enough to preach. It simply said, Stop Dating the Church. Find one, settle down. You'll never find a perfect one, by the way. I mean, you used to date that girl, and then you married her. Is that woman you married perfect? Yes. <laughs> we got some bright guys in this 11 o'clock service. Eight o'clock is too early to do that. One guy goes, no. And I thought, oh my goodness. You poor guy. That was a trick question. You weren't supposed to say no. <laughs> oh my goodness. It is an unfortunate reality in the average church, and we're among them, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the budget. And that's why we, as blessed as we are, still have needs in just about every department. In fact, I just happened to notice in the communique, Children's Ministry Volunteer Summit. Wouldn't it be unbelievable if there was a waiting list? to get in. Paul writes, if we could paraphrase this, be 
intentional to engage in every conceivable good deed. Now, that's going to extend out. You can talk about your family. We can talk about this house of faith. What about the broader church at large, ministry that's taking place that is, is happening perhaps in your own life outside these walls, this campus, the influence of this church? Wonderful ministry is taking place. Maybe God wants you to be involved in some way in, in that. We, we, we had a call just to give gifts to missionaries in September. Wouldn't it be great if we had to say to the body, stop, we just have too much, we can't afford the shipping. We're going to have a bag, I think, out there next week, I believe, for, for the bumper crop, and we're going to give all of this food to with love from Jesus. They've got a, a food shelter. They're going to give it away or sell it at a very, very low cost to those who, who need it. Looking for ways outside this body to benefit others. I remember as a missionary kid, I learned more just without knowing I was learning it. If you'd have told me I was supposed to be learning it, I wouldn't have been interested, but I just watched. And my dad, sometimes after a service, a guy would come up and he'd slip him a $20 bill and he'd say, half jokingly, half seriously, look, don't tell my pastor about this. He won't be too happy it wasn't given to the church. And how small can you be? I remember growing up with my three brothers, and we spent time each summer on, we called it deputation back in those days, traveling with our family, our missionary parents, mostly up north, which was my father's home country. And we would always end up traveling through Iowa. I shared with the old-timers about 15 years ago, if you heard that then, you'll remember their name to this day because it's just one of those unforgettable names. But every time we went to Iowa, we, we eventually stayed in the home of a faithful couple named the Peepers. And my mother would give us a lecture as we pulled into the driveway. Don't you boys dare say anything about their name, because we were already concocting several different <laughs> nicknames. We actually loved going there, frankly, because this couple didn't have kids. They kind of adopted us. And no matter what time of the day we arrived, Mrs. Peeper would be ready to serve us homemade sourdough cinnamon rolls with extra icing. I know it's close to lunch, but <laughs> hang with me. But we'd have to sing first. So us four boys, our feet couldn't even touch the carpet. We'd sit on the couch, just boom, 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 four of us. And we'd sing those old choruses. They, they liked this one in particular why worry when you can pray? Trust Jesus. He'll be your stay. Any of you know that one? Or am I just the only old guy in here? Okay. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Rest fully in his promise. Why worry, 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 worry when you can pray? We'd sing that. They'd feed us cinnamon rolls. It was a great <laughs> deal. Small price to pay. <laughs> I remember one time in Iowa... Our car broke down. This couple drove across the state to get us, take us back to their home, and help get that car repaired and back on the road. They weren't on church staff. They weren't a pastor and wife. They weren't former missionaries. They weren't parachurch leaders. They were farmers. Ready to engage in good deeds especially to those who are of the broader, wider household 
of faith. Beloved, the gospel is not like a Broadway play where we sit in our chairs and we watch it. Or rather, we get out of our seat, we put on a costume, we get out on the stage, and we play a role as God directs. I want you to notice, though, what may be surprising, because I've dealt with the analogy of Scripture, what other passages say. But if you look here specifically at what Paul is saying, would you notice who benefits from our good deeds? He goes on, these things, that is, these good deeds are good and profitable for men. That is, mankind in general. He's telling us that the engagement of our good deeds will be profitable, beneficial to mankind in general out there. Not just for the religious elite, not just for people you know, who like us or who are like us or who are in our church or in our broader whatever world that may be. He's talking about people in general. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about culture impacted by the good deeds of you and me. I thought back through church history at how the gospel affected the first century during the days of Paul, infanticide was epidemic, that his children would be left out to be exposed, to die if they weren't wanted. Christians began providing care for these abandoned children, baby girls especially at risk because they were costly and the dowry that would have to be provided one day. One second century Christian was even martyred by the Romans. We have the record of his life he supported and protected simply this, a number of deformed and crippled children who'd been saved from death after failed abortions or exposure. It was such an affront to Roman culture violating their cultural norm and, of course, bringing down guilt on their heads. They wanted none of it, and they put him to death. Seneca, a leading Roman philosopher uh, who lived just before this period in time, uh, communicated the majority opinion when he wrote these words that we know are tragic, quote, we drown children who at birth are weak and abnormal, end quote. And you want to know where we are today. We've arrived once again, this time with medical sophistication and, and, and prenatal science, but to the same ethical posture of decision-making, certainly our world outside is having to decide. Why? Because if a couple is found to be carrying a child with defects, he is encouraged and she is by the majority opinion that the best thing you ought to do is take its life while it's in the sanctuary of the womb. It's infanticide by another name. Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. Life is... Precious, no matter how difficult or disabled. What about the care of the sick? It would be Christianity that would be the foundation for health care. Building the first hospitals. Dionysius, a church leader in the third century, wrote about a plague that swept through Alexandria in 250 A.D. And he said this of those citizens. They, quote, thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends, casting the sufferers out upon the public roads, half dead, and then left them unburied 
I mean, we're not going to risk our lives, right? How different was the behavior of the Christian? How beneficial were they to their culture? Dionysius writes, and I quote, Believers did not spare themselves, but kept by each other, visited the sick without thought of their own peril, treated them for their healing, drawing upon themselves their neighbors' diseases, and willingly taking over to their own persons the sufferings of those around them. And the world says, we, we can't miss that. What an advertisement. And it's happening to this day. In fact, I clipped this last year. A New York Times editorialist wrote a column remarking on the work of Christians. And he noted, by the way, that he wasn't a Christian. I'll get to that in a minute. But here he says, and I'm quoting, In reporting on poverty, disease, oppression, evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate their income. I like the way you put that. Compared to the rest of the world, they are disproportionately likely to donate their income, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against things like hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, or genocide. He writes this, some of the bravest people you meet are these Christians who live their faith. Interesting choice of words. He goes on to write, I am not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. See, that's the advertising campaign for the gospel of grace. We who have received mercy and kindness and grace effectively through our individual and corporate franchises disseminate it, hand it out. The world says labor is demeaning. Christianity says, no, labor is actually a calling. It's honorable. And they go the extra mile. Our world says children are a burden. Those who are aging and diseased are a burden. The Christian says children and life, any kind, is a blessing from the Lord. The world says, hey, climbing over people, you know, on my race to the top is what it's all about. Christianity says, no, serving everybody, even those at the bottom rung, are what it's all about. The world says, I have never seen God. And the Christian says, let me show you what he looks like. And then he engages in good deeds that Paul writes are excellent and beneficial, profitable to all mankind. And the world takes note of our good deeds. And some of them say, how how did you come by that? Well, let me tell you about the Father. And they join you in worshiping, giving glory to your Father in heaven. I close with this. A Christian journal ran an online article about a Saturday morning effort by one church to kind of revitalize a a street downtown Compton, California. They just, people were poor, so they brought the paint and the nails and the lumber and just began working one house at a time. All the volunteers would wear their bright yellow shirts. He says, on one occasion, nearly 50 of us streamed out of the site, getting ready to head off for lunch, finishing one project on an old house. And this one guy writes, I was six or eight houses away when I passed a married couple working in their own yard. And he writes, I paused to compliment the woman on her rose bushes, and she noticed my yellow shirt. She asked me what we were doing up the street. And I told her, 
During my conversation with this woman, her husband had been weed whacking on the other side of the front yard, but when he saw me stop, he turned off his machine, set it down, and walked over to me. I will never forget his words. He nodded approvingly toward that renovated house down the street. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, I love your heart. Where can I get a heart like yours? See, that's it. This man was then able to communicate that he was simply reflecting the heart of his God who was truly alive. This is not original with me, but it's a quote I've often thought of and have said it before. The greatest obstacle to Christianity is a Christian who will not live out his faith. The greatest advertisement for Christianity is a Christian who brings his faith to life. You see, to a world that's convinced that jobs are real, sickness is real, houses are real, money's real, Heartache's real. Even, even chickens are real. Man, you get eggs from them. There's a tangible benefit. That's, that's real. But then a remarkable Christian comes along and advertises a gospel that's reliable because he's surrendered to a God who is personal and by virtue of that foundation initiates a lifestyle that is beneficial and brings God to life in the eyes of his culture. And they spot it. Those who are careful to engage in good deeds, those things that are good and profitable for all men. So, what are we going to do about it? Well, where are you serving? What role do you play? What are you giving? Is there something holding you back? Maybe in a moment as we pray, you can commit to start something this week and ask the Lord to help you as you, with intention and creativity and initiative, look around for ways to serve not only your family, not only this local house of faith, not only the broader, larger households of faith, but even engage in benefiting mankind. Father, thank you for the word that is alive from your living breath to us. You don't hold back. You tell us the truth. Now, Lord, I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to a flock that would join me in saying, how much time do we have to do anything? So, Father, we're going to need to, to, to take time and thought and, and be clear with ourselves of what we truly are or are not investing in someone beyond our own home address or maybe church address or maybe the Christian community at large are we really engaged in some way in advertising the gospel to mankind?
So we'll need your help, Father. As we surrender to you, and let me just pause and at this moment, and with your heads bowed and eyes closed, you, you talk to the Lord. Maybe he's provoked or promoted a thought in your own mind. Why don't you clarify that with him, whatever it might be? Or just pray, Lord, make things clear for me. And then we'll close. If you're here and you would like some spiritual help or maybe even to pray with myself or somebody else about a decision, we're here for that. Let's close. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Sing. In my